Hello, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. We are so grateful for our partner, the Habit Burger Grill, and the unbelievable support they've shown us in the past six years, especially during the pandemic. From now through October 21st, you can round up your bill at the Habit Burger Grill and donate your change to No Kid Hungry. Since 2015, the Habit Burger Grill has helped raise nearly $2.5 million to help end childhood hunger in America. We are so appreciative of their partnership and continued support. Thanks so much to the Habit Burger Grill. Uh, we uh, very rarely have uh, a guest on this show more than once, uh, but today's guest, uh, it's his second appearance, Sean Cassidy, uh, was the most popular guest we've ever had on Ad Passion and stir and i'm talking about over 230 some uh, episodes and uh he's not a man who sits still whether it's as a writer or a tv producer or as a singer or as an actor uh, there's always a lot more going on and a lot more to talk about so we asked sean to come back uh on the cusp of uh going out on tour um with a really amazing show and um we wanted to everybody to hear sean again so Sean Cassidy, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, as we were talking a moment ago, um, you were just wrapping up uh, some writing and work on this fabulous TV series, New Amsterdam, uh, that you also write. You obviously wear a lot of hats. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, as I say, you are the most popular guest we've ever had on Ad Passion and Stir, and we've had some pretty great guests. You have an amazing relationship with your fan base and with your audience. Uh, and you've incredibly generously uh, created a wine, uh, My First Crush, which benefits Share Our Strengths no, no Kid Hungry campaign. And when we last talked in February, that was just launching. Now it's being distributed by some amazing distributors. So anyhow, we're really glad you're here. Thanks, Sean. Well, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled and grateful to have so many wonderful things to talk to you about. Thanks for having me back. Well, uh, the first thing I want to talk about, because I'm so excited and uh, you know, a number of us are going to get to see you, is you've got a, a tour launching that I think uh, was, was out there and got interrupted uh, by COVID. Uh, but I, the dates that I've seen online are not all sold out, fortunately, but a lot of them are sold out. Me and a lot of people, yeah, certainly. I mean, all, all you know, uh, gratefully, again, yeah, uh, this is, we talked about this before, but, you know, I have a strange resume. My my last real concert tour ended in 1980 when I was 20, 21, and um, I didn't think that would be the last live music tour uh, I, I'd have in four decades, but uh, I found other things uh, that were uh, passions for me, and I pursued them, and Fortunately, many of them uh, did well, and I, I enjoyed my my run primarily as a writer-producer in television, but I found that I missed the connection with the audience that I'd enjoyed as a young man. And I also discovered that I had uh, a story to tell because storyteller is my prime job. And, and finding a, a melding of songs from my youth and uh, the youth of a of a generation of people and uh, tying them to stories that actually have a contemporary resonance and 
finding humor in them and, and a great deal of emotion in the reconnection between the, the fan base and my me because of our shared experience. It all sort of came together in this beautiful soup that I, uh, timing is everything, I decided to launch in 2019. And I just did a, a small little handful of shows, originally started at a tiny winery in the wine country of Santa Barbara, which is where I live. And then um, they were met with great success. And we uh, excitedly plotted to go out and do like 40 shows last year. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and nobody was going anywhere. So these shows kind of got haphazardly moved and it was tough to put together any kind of traditional tour. And we didn't know how many of the dates would last. And sure enough, many of them moved more than once. But it seems as though um, the forthcoming shows are going to uh, be performed and I will get to see an audience that I've missed uh, for a long time. While we're making My First Crush wine and uh, distributing most of it uh, via the internet and now MS Walker, I uh, ironically am playing a venue called City Winery where, yes, they serve wine and they, who knows, they might even serve My First Crush, but this is where I'm going to be doing my live music and storytelling show. Uh, it's looking like the whole thing will be sold out, which is miraculous. And it also includes Seattle and New York and Boston and Connecticut, right? Seattle, I'm, I'm playing uh, the 25th of September, and that's a big casino resort in Tulalip, and I'll have my full band there. And then on to Seneca, which is Niagara Falls in December, and Alexandria, Virginia, December, Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, Parks Casino, December. Ridgefield, Connecticut, New York City, Sony Hall, and closing in Boston at the City Winery, where I, again, we'll do a solo show, and I hope I see you, because you're not so far. That's where you will see me and my wife, Rosemary, and we, we can't wait. Well, so speaking of kids in the show, one of the things I'm really curious about, Sean, how did, how did you sit down and tell them you were going to do this? I, did, I don't think I did. I just started rehearsing it in the living room. <laughs> and... You know, we have a big piano in our living room. It's sort of a quasi-music room and a bunch of guitars hanging around. We got our son Rowan a drum set a couple of years ago, which I've kind of taken back for band rehearsal. Um, and then they just, you know, they just sort of came around and, and then their friends told them, you know, your dad's like on YouTube. And there's like, you know, lots of crazy old videos of me, you know, in satin pants, jumping around stages, opening the Grammy Awards. I mean, you know this whole other life. And again, they all, all their life, they saw me, you know, get up in the morning and go to an office as a writer. And then one day your dad goes, I think I'm going to do this. It's like, what? And then they come to casinos and see 2,500 people in the audience, like clapping and singing along with your songs and screaming. And these are adults, you know, it's like, it's a mind bender, I think for them. And it's fun for me to share it with them. It's fun for me to be doing at this point, because again, my, my relationship with my fans, and I use that word with quotes, because I, I think of fans more like, when you're, when you're a fan of someone, you respect them for their character, their accomplishment. I mean, I'm a fan of Jane Goodall and her lifetime of dedication to the well-being of chimpanzees, but I've never crossed paths with Dr. Goodall in my life personally. I haven't shared a personal experience with her, but in the case of my audience, these are people I shared a seminal part of my life with, and now I'm sharing it with them again in sort of this mutual survivor story 
or a, a three-act love story, if you will, boy meets girls and boys, boy loses girls and boys, and man gets them back, only to learn, much to his surprise, that maybe he never lost them at all. And that is unique. Uh, and it's an expanding story. Find your story is the theme of my show about, you know, we all have to find our story. And, and when we're born, there's often a, a story that society or our family or our own crazy expectations have written for us, but it's not always the story we're meant to experience or later tell. We have to find our own road, our own story, and the satisfaction in doing that is profound. And, and my show's about that too. And, and it sounds like you're giving people the almost the language they need to understand what probably deep down they were feeling anyhow, right? In terms of finding your story, you've kind of given it a vernacular that I think really helps people. I, I think it's universal. I don't think my experience is unique. It's unique in the little box it's in, but you know, anybody that has a transformative experience at a young age, I think has to assess that and in, in many cases, as I did, kind of recover from it and, and try and put it in the proper perspective in your life. Um, I, you know, the, the awakening moment, because I, I deliberately didn't go on the road and didn't want to perform and didn't want to be out there. I'm, I'm more of an introvert. I was thinking of something that uh, Alaya Kazan once said, the great director, and I, uh, yeah, I think about it all the time when I'm trying to write. Uh, he said, the, the more personal your story is, the more universal it is. Um, and it's so true. Sometimes people think, well, this is, you know, why would anybody care about this? But if it's deeply personal, it's, it's likely to be universal, and it sounds like that's what you're tapping into. No, that's an astonishing truth. It, it almost seems counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. The more personal, the more open you are, the more vulnerable you are to the audience, the more relatable you are. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, and you mentioned this in some of your Facebook posts, at least one that I'd read about uh, rehearsal and practicing, um, and you just said you're you're a better singer now than you were. It, it, is it is it like getting back on a on a bicycle after forty years? I mean, does it all just come back, or what was it like? It, it wasn't really like getting on a bicycle. I mean, I've been on the stage a lot since pop music. I mean, I was on Broadway for a year and a half, and I did a lot of theater. It's pretty much all I did in the '80s. I just would go out and do tiny little theater shows of cool plays because I wanted to have that experience. And I again, I was obsessed with with writing and playwrights, and ultimately that's the road I took for myself. But during the transition period, it was all about theater, and I'm I'm very comfortable being on a stage, but I was not comfortable singing pop songs that I'd sung at. 17, 18, 19 years old uh, at 60, unless I could find a way that the story behind the song somehow made them relevant now. So it was more than just the nostalgic experience of hearing the Do Run Run or Hey Dini or That's Rock and Roll or Do You Believe in Magic or whatever. Any of those songs in the body of this show, which is on the on its surface is a pop show, but it my dirty little secret is it's really a theater show because there is a uh, through line, a story that ties all those songs together with other songs. And I have a handful of new songs that are in it now that weren't when I first started. 
and I have some songs that, uh, you know, belong to my family members. And, you know, talking about my family, my parents, my brother David, my wife, my children, they are my story. Um, so they have to be part of the whole thing. And, and as it turns out, again, you know, our families are all of our story, no matter what business you're in. Hello, Ad Passion and Stir listeners. It's Billy Shore here. I'm coming to you today to ask for a favor. Share Our Strength launched Ad Passion and Stir in 2016 to promote conversations about food, justice, and society. And over more than 200 episodes, I've had the privilege of talking to some amazing people like Jeff Bridges, Pink, Anthony Anderson, Carol King, Ariana Huffington. And we've also talked to many of the most amazing chefs in this country. Daniel Hume, Mary Sue Milliken, Tanya Holland, Douglas Williams, and countless more. We're working on some exciting changes now to add passion and stir, and we want to hear from you about what you love about the podcast, what you want more of, and what you might change. You can find the survey at addpassionandstir.com. Just click the podcast survey button at the top of the page. Please share your feedback, and thank you for helping to make this podcast great. Now let's get back to the episode. Last time we spoke, you talked about... Uh, a relationship with your fans, which really sounded unique to me. Uh, and I understood it at an intellectual level. Uh, but then after um, our podcast was released and you generously put out a couple posts about it on Facebook, when I read the comments that uh, people gave back to you after they'd listened to the podcast, uh, what was so amazing to me was the tone of voice and the structure of the sentence of the way they put their words together, they were talking to you like they had crossed paths with you. And maybe they'd been to their sh your, your show uh, a long time ago, but there was such an intimacy there and it didn't feel like a, a, a false or a forced intimacy. It felt real. They just, they talked to you uh, like they'd known you for a long, long time, which is kind of what you've just said. Well, they have, and I, I feel like I've known them. I read their letters when they were little kids. And and many of them told me about their families and their parents and where they lived. And do I remember every letter? No, but I, you know, even as a young, young guy, 18, 19, 20, I felt protective of this audience of, of kids. And I felt a responsibility to live up to whatever idealized version they had in their heads about me. Music is what I started out doing. I mean, I wanted to be a singer and a performer and play music and, and acting too, but to a lesser extent, music was the first thing. And I turned that off. I mean, I kept doing it at my house. So you could see me at the Christmas party, but in my living room, but you, you know, performing music live. No. And, I, and I was, again, very fortunate. I was able to cultivate a different skill in writing and producing television that allowed me to get great fulfillment uh, as an artist. But as I say to all artists I come in contact with now, don't define yourself by the one thing that maybe you're, you know, you've got your first taste of success with. Creative people are creative people are creative people. And they often have talents in many different areas that they turn off because they feel they need to say, I am a this. And we are not a this, we're many things all of us. Um, 
It sounds like life is pretty good, and and it and it should be, just given both your creativity and your generosity, and how you find a way of turning things to the to the benefit of the others. I, I want to come back just for a moment to my first crush wines because when we first talked in February, that was kind of one of the reasons we talked. It was just on the cusp of being yeah. Yeah. released, or at least I think that there was a Valentine's wine, the rosé was being uh, released. And since since that time, uh, it's it feels like it's just really taken off. I texted you a, a, a photo a couple of weeks ago of uh, us sitting with a bottle of the rosé on the deck of our little cottage in Maine, where we've been riding out this this COVID storm. And it was a, a perfect night and the rosé made it uh, even better. And now that MS Walker is releasing it on the East Coast, it feels like a lot of good things are happening. And, you know, people should know that $2 from every bottle, which is way, way more than uh, most uh, kind of, you know, cause-related marketing partnerships are able to yield. Uh, $2 a bottle goes directly to our No Kid Hungry campaign, which means uh, we're getting into schools and making sure that kids have school breakfast and school lunch. And in the worst case, when the schools are closed because of the pandemic, um, we're using those funds to find alternative ways to get meals to kids in their homes. So it's been a, I, I just want to say, Sean, it continues to be a really big deal uh, for us. And uh, it wasn't something that we came to you and asked you to do. It was something that you thought up on your own and said, uh, you know, would would, it, would this be useful and would you want to be the beneficiary? And of course, we're, we're thrilled that we are. Um, but I just can't wait to see this continue to grow. Well, it is growing uh, leaps and bounds. And MS Walker is a big part of that. Um, and they generously, by the way, are giving two additional dollars for every bottle they sell, which is miraculous. But beyond that, like we're starting a wine club and at all my shows, when the people, you know, if they want to buy a T-shirt, they can, but they can also join the wine club. And that will be huge, I think, um, I hope. And since some of your shows are in a venue called City, City Winery, that sounds like a pretty good match. Yes, uh, it's it's true. And 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 Steve Clifton, I don't know how many people out there have heard of Brewer Clifton, but they're one of the world's best wines and the Pinot Noir grape that is grown in the Santa Rita Hills of Santa Barbara County is sort of world renowned as, as the best of the best. And this is the wine we're making. So it's not just a, yes, it's a charitable endeavor, but it's also an extraordinary wine. And I'm really proud of that. And um, it's been great working with him and it's only going to grow and grow and grow. And the fact that it means um, kids are going to be uh, less hungry than they were the day before this wine came out is huge to me. Well, I, I like almost all wines, but my wife, Rosemary, likes good wines and uh, she really loves your wines. And I, she's got a very discriminating palate. So uh, I, I trust her that it's a really, really good wine. Uh, let's talk a little bit about New Amsterdam. Um, you talked about a, a five-ring circus, and uh, that's one of them. And um, I don't know many people that write TV shows and also have several other jobs, but uh, you're going into season number four, and um, we'll start filming soon. Um, and you got through uh, what sounded like some very difficult um, COVID protocols. I think they're probably still in place while you're filming now. But um, how are you feeling about season four? I think it's going to be an extraordinary season. We're, you know, we're working via Zoom, our writer's room every day. And season three was really uh, about the cost of COVID to, you know, our, New Amsterdam is based on Bellevue Hospital. 
in New York, which is the largest public hospital in the country, and I think the oldest. Uh, and it was the epicenter of COVID last year. So a lot of the people we talk to every day were really going through a lot of talking about PTSD and grief, and they'd lost people they worked with, in addition to obviously many, many, many patients. Um, so much of our season was almost documenting that. Uh, and suddenly this fictional hospital show that had been very successful in its first two seasons uh, got, I think, a lot more socially conscious and um, was really reflecting the journey of the people in a real sense and also helping the writers deal, all of us deal with our own grief and processing and fear and trying to find a light at the end of this tunnel. And we did. And, and by the way, the light is reflected in season four. Uh, two of our leads on the show, our, our lead characters, uh, had been kind of secretly falling in love for a number of seasons. And we weren't even writing to, I mean, we were writing to it eventually, but they just had massive chemistry. And the fans saw it and we saw it and said, well, I guess we got to write to this. And finally, the, that is paying off this year. And um, well, the first episode written by David Schulner, who created the show, uh, is called More Joy, which should tell you all you need to know about what our season is going to embrace. Uh, I am writing episode seven, and that's going to be shooting the back half of September. So I'll be in New York for two and a half weeks covering the set as this episode shoots, which I'm really looking forward to. I haven't been on the set in a year and a half because of COVID. And yes, we'll still have safety protocols and I'll probably still have a mask on, but it'll be great to see everybody and hug everybody and uh, just uh, be back uh, with them. And then, you know, I'll, I'll come home and, and be with my family uh, again, and then I'll be out on the road again in December. And yes, there might be a Christmas song or two added to the uh, set and that'll be fun. I've never sang a Christmas song. Okay. <laughs> um, my, 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 my glass is full. My wine glass is full. How have you just weathered the February when we talked, seems like a lifetime ago in terms of what everyone's been through with COVID. How have you weathered the, just the COVID roller coaster and kept yourself sane? All, all of this work is probably a, you know, a, a pretty good, uh, distraction. Uh, but it feels like such a time of uncertainty again, as the Delta variant, uh, starts to pick up and organizations and offices like ours are trying to figure out, you know, uh, what's the safe way to have employees come back or uh, how do we redefine the future of work? Because we've learned a lot working differently uh, over the last year and a half. Uh, how have you processed it all? So, yeah, living with uncertainty. I, unfortunately, even without a pandemic, that's kind of the way we live. You know, that's what I thought a lot about. It's like, Wow, it's so much different now. Well, is it really? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't need a pandemic to remind me of that. Or maybe I did need the pandemic to remind me of that. But I'm aware of it now. And I think being older, you're certainly more aware of your own mortality. And and I am maybe conversely more fearless now because what's really at stake? Not living is what's at stake not making the choice to take risks is what's at stake. If you live like you don't know what's going to happen, but like, you know, like today could be your last, you're really living. And, and 
That's the upside of this. And I think a lot of people have gotten that message. Um, I hope it doesn't. I know it's getting worse now, but I hope that this is a short run of getting worse. It does seem like a lot more people are, are finally getting vaccinated. And I think a lot more people are just like, yes, personal choice. And yes, I want my freedom, but I also don't want my business shut down. And I really want to go inside that stadium or that theater or that restaurant. Um, and so many, you know, so many people initially were concerned about this unknown of the vaccine. But now that, that so many people have been vaccinated safely, that argument doesn't really hold anymore. If you go to SeanCassidy.com, you'll find the magic of a midnight sky tour and all of these dates listed. Is that the best place to go, Sean? SeanCassidy.com? It is. There are links to tickets there. And the magic of a midnight sky, some people might remember, is a line from a, a song of mine uh, written by Eric Carmen called Hey Dini. And as I say, the show is a composite of old and new. And um, I'm kind of astonished that not only are the, you know, the kids of old coming as adults, but they're often bringing their children and family members. And there these days as many men in the audience as there are women, which was a novelty for me back in the day. Um, and anyway, it's just, it's a beautiful experience all the way around. Um, and I'm really going to be excited to see you out there and uh, to see your family and my family will will be there with me as well. So uh, thanks so much for what you're doing. Thank you, Billy. I look forward to seeing you and uh, everyone else out there. And uh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir with Sean Cassidy, uh, writer of New Amsterdam, an amazing TV show, actor, producer, singer, uh, and soon to be on tour once again with the magic of a midnight sky. Uh, on behalf of our team at Share Our Strength in the No Get Hungry campaign and our producer at District Productive, Paul Whittle, uh, thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. You can find all of our previous episodes at Share Our Strength slash podcasts, and you can rate us and rank us and, um, and share them with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore.